Welcome back to the program here Monday to Friday, starting at noon Eastern, 9 Pacific. Coming up in hour two, Craig Simpson from Hockey Night in Canada and the NHL on Sportsnet. Cam Robinson from Elite Prospects. We'll talk about Andre Kuzmenko and also some of the uh, names you will hear called in the first and eh, maybe getting to some second rounders as well at the uh, NHL draft in Montreal, July 7th and 8th. Uh, in the meantime, eyes on the Dallas Stars and their head coaching situation. It appears that if, as if at this point, it's a mere formality. Uh, let's get some lawyers paid here first, folks, before we put this thing to bed, that Peter DeBoer will be the next head coach of the Dallas Stars. Uh, Matthew DeFranks uh, joins me now from the Dallas Morning News covering this and other Dallas Stars stories. Uh, Matthew, thanks so much for doing this. How are you today, pal? Good. How are you doing, Jeff? Uh, so, um, I don't know when it will be made official, but it seems as if this is, I mean, it certainly feels as if, and what we've been led to believe, this is now in the hands of the lawyers who need to get some billable hours in first before this thing gets made <laughs> official. But every, everything's sort of trending towards the, uh, the announcement that Peter DeBoer will be the next head coach of the Dallas Stars. Yeah, uh, you know, when I talked to some people before, they said there are some details that still needs to be worked out. And, uh, you know, I, I hear kind of daily whether there's going to be an announcement or not. So it uh, seems to be just uh, on hold for the moment. Um, but signs are pointing towards uh, towards Pete DeBoer becoming the next uh, coach of the Stars, and we'll just kind of uh, wait to see when that actually becomes official. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the curious things here through all this is, you know, the the money is the money, and I understand that. But to me, the interesting thing on any contract right now with Dallas is the term uh, of the deal. Uh, we all know that uh, the owner is not a fan uh, of term for any employee, whether it's a player, whether it's someone that works in hockey ops, someone that's uh, the executive level, the management level. He's not a big fan of handing out term right now really to anyone uh, and I believe that was one of the holdups when they tried to bring Rick Tockett in uh, at the All-Star game. Um, what what type of term do you expect here for, for Pete DeBoer? Like, I have a hard time believing that Peter DeBoer is going to commit at a two-year deal. Uh, LeBron put something at four times four uh, out there a couple of days ago. Um, you know, the four-on number is probably higher than the owner wanted. But really, the big one for me is four years on term for a coach where I don't know that the owner's necessarily great with that amount of years yeah and before we even get to the coach i think the term on the gm is uh very noteworthy right i mean jim yes. only has one year left on his contract you know what kind of term do you want to give a coach to a with a gm that has one year left how comfortable do they feel with uh, a certain number uh, on their contract and um, so i think that's kind of going to be an interesting aspect to watch whenever you know, this hire does become official. What happens to Jim Nill? Is there a, a contract extension that they're working on? Is you know, I haven't been told anything of that nature. And whenever I ask, it's always, hey, if that's an issue with the Nets coach, we'll deal with it uh, as it comes. Uh, so it didn't seem like it was too much of a concern to the stars at the time. But, you know, we'll see how it all shapes out. And when I talked to Jim Nell before, it, he kind of mentions him and Tom Gallardi have had discussions a lot about what succession plans look like and what the next few years and look like. And that's something that they've been talking about for years now. And so I'm curious to see, you know, what happens at the management level, uh, you know, after this coaching hire, is there a succession plan that becomes more clear or is it something that has to do with Jim Nill maybe signing on for a little bit longer? Um, so mm-hmm. I think that's a, an interesting aspect that goes along, I think a little bit in tandem with, 
the the coach's contract in, in terms of what kind of term uh, Pete DeBoer would have. You know, one of the things, and I think you're bang on about the the coach general manager dynamic. Uh, if the coach comes in, let's say it's on a four year deal, and Jim Neal only has one, you know, how good are you with that? If you're Peter DeBoer, that an an incoming general manager, a new general manager, um, you know, he you may not be his guy. What position does that put you in? But I always wonder about free agents uh, in the off season, and you know how difficult it is for a manager who's on an expiring contract to to really get a ton of work done when, you know, if you're going free agent shopping, a lot of players want term on their deals and are they good being signed, you know, by someone who may be on the way out uh, after one season. I remember talking to Teddy Purcell uh, when he signed with, with Los Angeles and it was coming down to Toronto and L.A. And, you know, he was making the point that, you know, there were all kinds of rumors that John Ferguson, who was a then general manager of the Maple Leafs, might not be there much longer. And if we got, you know, signed by a general manager who was on his way out the door, what happens with the new GM that comes in? And if we've, if I'm not his guy, what position does that put me in? So it does put, you know, the organization in kind of a in kind of a weird spot when it comes to free agency, doesn't it, Matthew? When, you know, your general manager, the one signing the contracts and trying to, to lure you to the organization might not have an extension past the season. Yeah, I think it's not just in terms of uh, you know potential trades or what to do with their career down the line, but you know players have talked about Dallas being a destination because of the way the organization treats them. And I think Jim Nell is a big part of that and how he treats people and how he treats his staff and players and uh, things of that nature. And I think he's been a big part of building uh, that kind of culture around the, the team. And, you know, I think the other part is obviously there's, they've been handing out some bigger uh, deals in agency with some term. I mean, you look at some of the older guys they signed. I don't think many people would have given Joe Pavelski three years or many people would have given Ryan Suter four years uh, with some no moves on there, too. So, you know, there are, uh, I think, a different aspects of, uh, of what Jim Nell does and what he brings to the organization that uh, that are important in free agency. And, you know, as, as you mentioned, yeah, I don't know how – how much that would impact potential free agents this summer looking at his situation and what the situation may be in a year from now. Uh, being joined by, well, we're talking about the Dallas Stars here and we're waiting for the news about Peter DeBoer being joined by Matthew DeFranks of the Dallas Morning News. Um, one more thing on, on Peter DeBoer and then I do want to ask you about the team this offseason. I would have to think that the moment Peter DeBoer becomes available, um, Dallas's ears perk up, and maybe the first phone call or one of the first phone calls that Jim Nell makes is to Joe Pavelski, who would have been with Peter DeBoer in San Jose to get his thoughts uh, on DeBoer. And, you know, given the success that Pavelski had with Peter DeBoer, uh, given how DeBoer likes to create offense from shots from the point, and that's a great place where Joe Pavelski is able to dine out on the ice, whether it's tips or whether it's short chips with pucks um, after rebounds. This is this is a coach whose system really works well for someone like Joe Pavelski. Essentially, Matthew, what I'm getting at is I would assume that a phone call was, at least one phone call was made to Joe Pavelski to get his thoughts on Peter DeBoer. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think the question is not if there was one. It was how many and how often uh, they were, right? I, I think especially for for a coaching hire, I mean, this is Jim Nell's fifth coach in Dallas. Yeah, I think there is some more pressure to, to get it right. Um, 
especially with some of uh, the ages on they have on the Stars roster. And so you want as much information as you can. It only makes sense to ask the guy who was a captain under DeBoer, who had great success, and now who was uh, 81 points last season, your leading scorer. So I think it would make a ton of sense in the world to talk to him. It's just a matter of how often and, and really how many times did they talk to each other during this whole search. I think... Uh, I think you're right. I think they did talk a lot, and uh, we'll see what kind of impact uh, you know that has uh, on Joe Pavelski getting uh, Pete DeBoer back uh, back behind the bench. So a couple of big pieces of business here once the DeBoer affair is put to bed. Um, Jake Ottinger, uh, Jason Robertson are, uh, are are due new contracts. I know that you know Tom Gillardi isn't exactly thrilled with the long term deals, or is that just reserved? Uh, to players that are approaching the ominous you know, uh, age of 30. Uh, if you have the chance to take, sign Jake Ottinger long-term, do you do it? You have the chance to sign Jason Robertson long-term, do you do it? Where's the team thinking with these two players, huge players for the future of the team, to say nothing of the present? Present. Where is Jim Nill? Where are the Dallas Stars with these two guys? Yeah, I think if you look at even the last, summer uh they showed the willingness to go eight years on mirror haston because he was a young superstar and i think they look at these two players right now jason robertson and jake ottinger and say hey we have something maybe not quite up to mirror haston standards but we have cornerstones to build the, the franchise around and you know when i've talked with jim nell before he says well it, it all depends on on what they want and now, obviously, to a certain extent, that's that's true. Negotiation is is two sides, uh, but I think the stars have shown that they are willing to go with term on younger players who they think will will live up to that term, right? That that will be productive and 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 have uh, numbers that live up to that cap hit. I mean, I think the tricky part with Jason Robertson uh, is that. You know, they look at his contract and they say, we're actually really signing two contracts with this one because whatever we pay Robertson, we're going to have to pay Rope Hints even more uh, the next the next year. So they they look at that that way. And, and I think I wonder about the, the players and say, well, this, this flat cap's going to go away shortly if revenues are trending the way they are. And uh, you know, maybe in a few years, the cap gets a bit bump and maybe that's when they want to get a payday. So... Uh, I wonder where uh, where their heads are at and, uh, and what they want to do there. And as far as Jake Ottinger, I mean, I was looking at the comps before the playoffs, and you look at guys like Carter Hart um, and that contract there, and then you look at the the, the series he had against uh, Calgary, Jake Ottinger, and you wonder yeah. how much higher that dollar amount got. So uh, it'll be interesting to see where they actually land with Jake Ottinger because I think you're probably a little bit more wary of going – uh, long, long term with goaltenders and you are with uh, forwards. So you mentioned Rupe Hintz there a second ago, and I'm of the belief that even though he has one more year left on his contract, I'm I'm of the belief that Dallas is going to try to get him done this summer as well. That this will be the summer of the coach, the summer of Ottinger, the summer of Jason Robertson, but also the summer of Rupe Hintz getting his long-term contract extension you with me on that one, or you think, eh, they'll, they'll punt it to next summer? I mean, it makes it makes sense for the Stars to try to do this, right? Um, because I, I think if they had tried to to do something similar uh, on on maybe say, on a, I know it's just a different situation, but say they tried to do it with with uh, Robertson uh, before last season started, how how much 
different does that contract look? And, um, you know, hence uh, the, the issue with, with him would be durability. I mean, he's had trouble, trouble with the staying healthy. He obviously had, um, you know, the groin injury that limited him in the uh, shortened season. And he missed, uh, you know, game seven against Calgary uh, because of an oblique injury. He was had a broken foot in game seven against St. Louis a few years ago. So that's been kind of the concern with Rope Hintz, but he was their, their number one center and he is their number one center of the future. And uh, so I think it would behoove them to try to get him locked in now before maybe that price tag gets a little bit, a little bit mm-hmm. more uh, in the future. Um, but we'll see, we'll see how the uh, whole cap situation works out as well. Let me uh, let me ask you about one more thing here with the Dallas Stars. Uh, I'm of the belief that Wyatt Johnson is going to have every single opportunity to make this team next season. I don't think they have his name in pen anywhere, but to me it feels like and sounds like they have Wyatt Johnson's name in pencil on a lineup for next season. Does it feel the same way to you? Yeah, I, I've kind of, when I write about why Johnson, I stopped short of saying he's likely to, to make the NHL roster because I don't think he's quite at that level of, of pen pencil, right? But I, I'm with you that I, the way the stars talk about him and the way that, you know, he has produced and the age that he is, uh, it's very clear he's, he's an exceptional talent, right? There's only been three teenagers to play for the stars under Jim Nill. One's Miro Haskinen. The others are Dennis Gurionov and Val Nachushkin. So you say, what is Wyatt Johnson in that in that group? And he's probably you know, better better than better than uh, Gurionov, I would say, and uh, yep. you know up there with the other two. And the other thing is, you know, Jim Nils never had a a player eligible to go back to the CHL that stayed in the NHL. Obviously, right? These other three guys were not uh, in the CHL, so. Uh, we've never really had a case like him before, but you look at you know, the previous guys in the OHL that led the league in scoring in the regular season and the playoffs. And you see names like Debrinkit, King, Perry, Hall, and all of those guys went uh, to the NHL that season and that's where they were playing. So you wonder what there is left to prove in the OHL for Wyatt Johnston. And obviously he can't go to the AHL. And, you know, this is a team with, with where they are at the cap they need production from entry-level contracts, and this is going to be one of your best shots at getting production from an entry-level contract in Wyatt Johnston. Yeah, a heck of a player, and there are others on the horizon. Listen, uh, we've talked plenty about Ty Delandria and, I th- and Maverick Bork, and we'll see him uh, tonight in the Memorial Cup in St. John. He's an ex- he plays for Schwinnigan, as you all know, an ex- out- outstanding uh, prospect. I, I, I kind of really have to give it to Dallas Stars scouts here. It's not like they're picking Ty Heiskanen was, but that was a you know a, a lottery win. But it's not as if they're picking top three every year, like. Dallas Stars scouts have really done, you know, a, a real nice job here for the organization. The amateur scouts have. Yeah, it's really hard to argue with the results that the amateur scouts have have had. Uh, you know, even you know, 2017, that draft is obviously oh, at the top. <laughs> yeah, and then then you get to Ottinger at the end of the first round, Robertson in the second round, and even Jacob Peterson in the fifth round. You know, fifth rounders don't become NHL contributors very often, and 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 Jacob Peterson did that. So. Uh, you know, obviously they've been they had their their issues earlier. Um, if you look at Honka and, and maybe even Riley Tufty, uh, but but now they seem to have guys that are 
yeah. in the pipeline that are you know offensively minded and skilled and talented and you know Maverick Bork was 30th overall right you know Stank Oven goes in the second round uh, even Harley was at 18 so they're getting guys that you know kind of overlooked by other teams and I think in in Y Johnston's case a lot of it had to do with them not even yeah. playing that year before um, so they kind of found a market inconsistency there. Uh, with the OHL players, Y Johnson, and later on in the draft with Artem Grushnikov. Absolutely. We got to hustle. Matthew, thanks as always for stopping by, sharing your expertise on the Dallas Stars. Much appreciated, pal. Thanks, Jeff. Matthew DeFranks from the uh, Dallas Morning News. Got to hustle. Cam Robinson coming up, talking about prospects in hour two. But next, Craig Simpson from Hockey Night. The smartest takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis and Stephen Brunt. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, welcome back to the program. Welcome to Hour 2. Coming up at the uh, bottom of the hour, we're going to talk to Cam Robinson from Elite Prospects. Uh, get a time and temp on Andre Kuzmenko, who signs yesterday with the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, Edmonton, very much in the running for the, uh, the Russian forward services, but he walks into a Vancouver Canucks organization now on a one-year deal with a great opportunity here um, to put up some big points. Let's not forget who the head coach is there. Uh, and to play with Elias Pettersson, which many already have him ticketed uh, to play with. Anyhow, more on uh, Kuzmenko and prospects coming up at the bottom of the hour with Cam Robinson. Meantime, Craig Simpson joins me now from Hockey Night in Canada and the NHL on Sportsnet. First of all, Craig, thanks as always for for stopping by. And safe to say now, that is what you call a response from the Tampa Bay Lightning. <laughs> yeah, good, uh, good to be on, Jeff. Uh, you know what, I think even... Uh, Chris and I were talking prior to the game and just felt even the fans seemed a little subdued and a little nervous coming into that game. I mean, it really was a different atmosphere than even the first round when we were down there doing the Leaf uh, uh, Tampa series. So, you know, I I think it was understandable that everybody was a little bit concerned. I thought uh, right on cue the way John Cooper handled, you know, after game two and respecting his team and trusting his team. Uh, but honestly, I, I, I wasn't sure that they'd have the answer to, to get back in the series. So it's uh, it's another big step for a, a group of guys that have proven a lot in the last uh, two years, three years. And uh, a game three there was just another example of finding a way to win. And, uh, uh, I think it was a, a pretty impressive game to sort of wrestle the series back and, and make it an interesting mm-hmm. one now. So there were a few moments that you might look at and you say, okay, the whole game either pivoted here or got cemented here. Um, a couple of things that we'll think of is the Vasilevsky save on JT Comfer. Uh, yep. we'll, think, we'll think of the, uh, the challenge as well, won by the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, that Palat goal that made it two to one. Maybe Nick Paul, uh, you know, stumbling around the ice as he's clearly not a hundred percent scoring. The maroon goal that chases Kemper. Like, what were the moments for you in last night's game, Craig, where you said, "Okay, this game just pivoted," or this game just got cemented? Well, I, I think the the beginning is what you were saying with Vasilevsky. I, I mean, it, it. I know that 
Colorado scored the first goal, so they got the lead. And yeah, they, uh, you know, Tampa got the break with the uh, challenge, which was an interesting one. Uh, that was I wasn't quite sure if they were going to get that call or not. But <laughs> to me, to me, the the pad saves and the stretching leg at the beginning of the first, and then the beginning of the second period, he made another one uh, at the at the start of the second period to sort of settle everybody down. Uh, I mean, that's there was. I would say uh, when Chris and I were walking home from the game, I said there was about six shots last night that Vasilevsky made, you know, excellent saves on. And I said, Chris, what struck me in game two was that they went in. And, like, it, it really stood out in game two. Shots that you normally see Vasilevsky make a save on went in in game two. And even game one, you know, he, he was a little bit loose compared to normal. Last night, to me, he made the saves that you go, oh, yeah, that's what you expect from the guy. And if I'm a player and his teammate, they got that feeling too. And I think those early saves really settled everybody in Tampa down that we got our guy back. I mean, we got the guy who's been the best playoff goaltender the last three years and, quite honestly, one of the best in, in NHL history for his age and uh, I think that made the difference. I think that gives you power. I mean, that really settles you down as a team. It's their identity of who they are, always being able to bounce back. And I really felt that, that Vasilevsky making those kind of saves again were mm-hmm. the reason that that team got, got the power that they did. The, the, the only one thing that would still concern me, because I'm with you about Vasilevsky, and if he is back, look out, because if the fight turns into Kemper versus Vasilevsky, I don't think that's one that Colorado no. wants to have. Yeah. No. But the, the only thing, Craig, that gives me a little bit of concern here is, and we saw this starting in Game 1, and we really saw it in Game 2, you know, what Colorado is trying to do here is draw the puck from Vasilevsky's left side to his right. That's where they're trying yep. to set up back doors. And they're shooting blocker. And you look at Landeskog's second goal. I mean, the first one was, you know, they're in the crease. Landeskog gets, you know, cross-checked for, by Chernak and, and, yeah. and taps it in. But the shot from Landeskog on the second goal, it's that same spot again. It's high blocker again on Vasilevsky. So... Like I know they only scored two goals last night, but if we ever get into a game where Colorado starts to get some clean looks, you know where they're going. And again, last night it worked with Gabriel Landeskog. Yeah, you know what? That was a, and, and I mentioned on that goal too. I, I think when you look at that power play, you mentioned Landeskog's other goals are always right around the crease. I, I honestly think that Vasilevsky was not expecting a shot there, was expecting maybe set up or pass, and mm-hmm. then you get a shot through through the screen. Uh, I said, said it going into game two, and I'll continue on after game three. I'll take Vasilevsky over Kemper or Francis any day. And I thought, yes. like, the, the big failure for me for, for Tampa in games one and two is they totally let, Kemper off the hook. I mean, game one, they didn't really pressure him. They scored the two goals in 48 seconds and then couldn't keep the pressure on. I I thought you got a chance to chase him, I thought, even in game one. And to their credit, Colorado hunkered down and didn't give up many shots after that. Game two, 16 shots. I mean, you can't look at that other side and say, everybody knows coming in that there's a question mark about the other goaltender. He's not a proven playoff guy. And so you got to feel that you've got the advantage in that, and they totally let him off the hook in the two games. So I, I thought 
It was a telltale sign uh, of what Jared Bednar really feels about his goaltending that he pulled Kemper in a 5-2 game with eight and a half left in the second period. I mean, that to me was shocking as well going, uh, we talked at the beginning of game one, is it a tough decision putting Kemper in? Like, Francis had won six in a row, and he got them through to the Stanley yeah. Cup. And to me, that pull last night with eight and a half, in, you're only down by three. You got half a game left. And so I will be really interested in, of what the decision-making process is for tomorrow of who's going to be in goal for the Colorado Avalanche because it, to me, it's the biggest thing. If I was a Tampa Bay Lightning player, i go, now we've got the seed of doubt. And the seed of doubt isn't just about their entire game, the seed of doubt is about your goaltender. And I can tell you it's infectious in a team. When If you have any question at all, and then the questions get thrown out there, that's where you, you've got to try to erase those feelings and erase those, those thoughts in your team. And I thought game three uh, planted that seed, and I'll be really interested of how the rest of the series goes in that regard. You know, I, I know there's the idea that a loss is just a loss and, you know, don't worry about, you know, how many goals they scored and how many goals we didn't score. A loss is a loss and you move on. Whether it's 7-1 to one or 2-1, to one, you just move on. But I, I, I'm always stunned. And again, I'm not someone that believes in momentum between games. Let me get that out early here, Craig. I think every game yeah. is a standalone game. I don't think the momentum carries over from one to the other. Uh, I just don't know how... The Tampa Bay Lightning can look so profoundly different between Game 2 and Game 3. I mean, you played, Craig. You were in these series like this. You were in games where, you know, you know, one game you look like the 76 Habs and the next game yeah. you look like you're the 74 Capitals. Like, it happens. Well, I'll, I, I'll I, I just you, wonder how. I'll give, you, I'll give you the best example I have, not as a player but as an assistant coach. Yeah, 16 years ago, when we won game six in Edmonton against Carolina, we played, as Jared Bednar said in game two, we played our perfect game. I mean, we, we played as, after winning game five in overtime, shorthanded goal by Fernando Persani, we went at home game six and just played perfectly. And we won 4 nothing. And I honestly felt at the end of that game, I said, you know, we blew game one. We should have had it. We should have had the cup on the ice there. Uh, it should have been our win. Instead, we have to go back to Carolina for Game 7. And personally, I felt that's an easy one for Carolina to shake off because they were never even close. Like, that game was never in doubt. We had control of it from the start. So that, to me, was Game 2 for Colorado. They played a perfect game. They executed an absolute perfect game. There was no time in that game that I felt Tampa was going to ever have a chance to come back in it. So, uh, and I said it on the broadcast of game two uh, in Colorado. I said, that's one that as a team for Tampa, you throw that game in the garbage before you leave the dressing room because you don't carry any of that back to Tampa because you weren't even close. It wasn't even a game. I felt the exact same thing 16 years ago with Carolina. It was easy for, well, it was easy for them to go home and just say, guys, you got, you got to erase that one. We weren't even close. Now we got game seven on home ice. And they did, and they scored a minute 27 in the game seven, and you know the rest is history. They won the Stanley Cup. 
That's exactly what Tampa did. They were never a part of game two, and they went back and said, we got to file that one away, and we got to figure out how to claw back in the series. And that's exactly what they've done. And so when Cooper said that about, you know, losing is just one game, and it's, it's worse to lose in overtime because you were close, and you played a great game, and you wasted a good effort. They didn't waste a good effort in game two. They were mm-hmm. brutal. And as a as a group, they fought back, and now all of a sudden you got a series. And, you know, if they play that same game tomorrow night, now you're going back and the pressure swings back to the Avalanche to say, okay, can we dial up that, that game that we had in game two and, and try to do it all over again? Let me let me let me uh, let me detour here and go back to 2006 because you brought it up and something I've always wanted to ask you here. Maybe I'll, I'll couch it in reference to, to Ball Arena, but 2006, uh, I went to Edmonton games against Anaheim and San Jose. I didn't make it to any of the Carolina games in the final. Yeah, but I can tell you, Craig, that was the loudest building I was ever in. Yeah, that was the loudest building for a hockey game I was ever in. <laughs> period. Um, A, what's the loudest building you've ever been in, either coaching or part of? And B, how does Ball Arena in Denver compare to that 2006 Edmonton experience? Yeah, you know, it's always interesting. The building has a lot to do with it, right? You you get, uh, you know, an old barn like we had that, what was it called back then? Was it Rexall back then? Rexall. It's called Rexall. Was it Rexall? Yeah, it must have been Rexall. Yeah, and I just think because of the old building and the lower ceiling, yeah, that that to me was really interesting because in the cup runs that I was a part of as a player, it was not like that at all. You know, the, the fans almost kind of took it for granted a little bit. I, I didn't feel we had really a loud arena. Uh, and then I just think, you know, the absence of not winning since 1990 and here you are in 2006, the fans were just incredible. So I, oh. I do, I do feel that that was the most incredible experience that I've been around, uh, you know, as a player or a coach in that regard and the loudest uh, ball arena though, to their credit, uh, you know, they, they're, they're a knowledgeable crowd. They're a real hockey, you know, group that I thought is that, same mindset that they cheer the right things they they know when they have to get their team up they're involved with the singing and all that so no it's got a really good atmosphere and i i think that you know you get to this level tampa's been such a great uh place to to be at games as well and I, i think both do it justice and both do have an impact when you get to those key moments that maybe they're the ones that can give you a little boost to get you over the edge um, if the Consmith Trophy were awarded today, the consensus seems to be it's Kale McCars. A, do you agree with that? Uh, you know what? Good question. I haven't really been focused on that or thought about it. Um, okay. Uh, you know, impactfully, yes. Um, I don't even know who's leading. Who's leading the playoffs in scoring? I, I know I should Connor know that. McDa- Connor, McDa- Connor McDavid is still oh, yeah, with 33 points. Oh, yeah, the two guys that are done. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's how McDavid, far your mind McDavid, goes when you go from series yeah. to series. Um, McDavid, so, just, just we're on the same page. McDavid and Dreisaitl. So McDavid has 33 points. He's still in first. Yeah. Dreisaitl with 32. Kale McCarr <laughs> with 26. He's tied, with, he, he's tied okay. with Nikita Kucherov at 26. Then we got Miko yeah. Rainer with 24. Yeah, you know what? It, it's interesting. I, I, uh, I, I would say yes, but 
if Colorado doesn't win, I don't think you can pick Kale McCarr, right? Uh, and I think you'll see that'll be the swing to me is what team ends up coming and winning. If 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 Vasilevsky does what he did last series, where I, I said yeah. like against New York, he let in nine goals in the first two games. They won a 3-2 win in game uh, three, three, and then it was 1-1-1-1, yep. one, 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 right? And if he does that yeah. again, I don't tell me, tell me a greater impact. Coming into this series, he had had eight out of 11 games with one goal against or less. And that, to me, is, you know, as a player, if you got to only score two goals to win a game, uh, win eight of the 16 you got, you're going to win, you know, like – that to me yeah. is the biggest impact. So I, I still think it's out there. I think McCarr has been fun to watch. He's been into this series, I think, now and got his rhythm. The guy that will be interesting to watch that I see a lot of frustration and anxiousness is, is McKinnon. You know, he's, he's doing a lot of the things that he always does, but the, but the production's not happening. And to me, when I'm watching him, he's like that guy who just can't wait to make something happen and it's not, and he's getting frustrated. So uh, I think game four is a huge game for him in terms of, you know, just play your game, share the puck, move it around. Don't get, don't get too overly anxious of trying to make something great happen. And he's got to find a way to get himself into the series mm-hmm. offensively because quite frankly, he hasn't yet. You know, I think, um, if Tampa does win, we're gonna we'll probably be talking about Andre Vasilevsky. I think you're bang on about that. Uh, I think you can also right now make a case for Nikita Kucherov. I also think, and you may think this one is strained, Craig. I'm I'm curious about how how you feel about this player right now. How do you feel about Andre Palat in these playoffs? Oh, I I think he's the exact kind of player that John Cooper imagines he can be uh you know i I think he's the the great utility player the guy who you can rely upon in playoff time he's a guy that you can use in every situation um it's it's kind of hard to think of him playing 16 30 to be the consummate winner you know like (laughs) uh i i just think he's an important guy but he's not a guy that that carries the team. I, I just think that he personifies what playoffs are all about. You know, where where can you produce the most? Where can you play the biggest role? Uh, I think he's he's a dynamite player that I know John Cooper values and respects a lot. But if you're putting him in that you know conversation, I mm-hmm. I don't think so. You know, would you, would would you put Valeri Nachushkin in that conversation? Yeah, he's had a bigger impact for sure. Um, I I think that, uh, you know, he's one of those surprise players that you always have that says, oh, man, like he's showing now in the playoffs uh, a level of play that maybe you go, okay, he had a career year this year, he was good, but now when the time is toughest and it's, it's hard to make plays, he's showing that he's got no fear. He's showing that he's got real poise. And uh, I, I think that's been really impressive, you know. I, I, but to me, you always go with the goalie. I, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I scored 16 goals in 21 games in uh, 1990, led the playoffs in scoring. But there was no question, Bill Ranford was our guy. <laughs> he won the con Smythe. He was right? awesome. Oh, was he well, good. he had like what a one point yeah. 
seven nine or something in the like to yeah. me the goaltender is is the most important position without any question and you know i i thought uh two years ago vasilevsky should have won the con smith too and he didn't he but he won it last year right and so that to me is the most interesting part when you get to playoff time i, I look to the net and say show me a team that wins the cup and they've probably got the best goaltender I'm sure I'm going to offend some goaltender by saying this, and maybe you can remind me who should have this distinction more than Bill Ranford, but whenever I think Bill Ranford, Craig, I think the best shoulder roll the game ever saw when he made (laughs) saves. The best shoulder roll going, agree or disagree? Yeah, what do you mean by that? What's a shoulder roll? Well, so when he, when he when he come when he comes across and remember how he do that move where he would he would go down and roll on his shoulders and the pads would come up as he would roll on okay, his shoulder, he would the, he would stop shots high with his pads more than any goaltender right. I ever saw. Yeah, the the flip around pads. You, you know, yeah. I really I loved him as a when he wasn't the starter and sure as he was, he was the best teammate because he'd take shots all night, like in practice. Huh. He'd take it. You want to stay an extra half hour after practice and shoot, Billy's there for you. And I, I just always respected that. He challenged you. He made you a better shooter in practice. And then when he got his chance, you know, he, he ran with it and he was exceptional. So I, yeah. I got all kinds of time for Billy and what a what a great teammate and what a great run he had for us in, in 1990. Let me close on this. Uh, the Oilers making it official. Uh, no surprise. Jay Woodcroft has the interim tag removed. Uh, he signs a contract to become the next head coach of the Edmonton Oilers. No surprise there, correct, Craig? Uh, no, I, I think, you know, given the the turnaround that the team had, the success that they got to at a level, uh, uh, you'd be probably remiss if you were looking elsewhere. I think yeah. the interesting part will be now is the big challenge, right? You come in and can make an impact in the midseason and everybody's sort of adjusting on the fly. Now it's your team. It's your team from the beginning. He's got lots of big ideas, and this will be his opportunity to prove that uh, those ideas uh, can transform that team and get them to the next level. So I think it is a no-brainer that he got there. Now now the challenge for him is, you know, it's your it's your team now right from the get-go. Uh, it'll be fun to watch mm-hmm. uh, how the team responds as he goes forward. Uh, fun team to watch in the offseason to see uh, what Ken Holland ends up doing with this team and what the role for Paul Coffey is uh, through all of this as well. Craig, this has been great. Um, listen, you and CC have been fantastic. Continued success. We'll be tuned in for Game 4 for sure. Thanks so much for this Thanks, as Jeff. always. All right, take care, man. Bye-bye. There he is, Craig Simpson from Hockey Night in Canada and the NHL on Sportsnet. And, yeah, the Oilers uh, making it official. Kiprios tweeting it this morning, and it is a three-year contract extension uh, for Jay Woodcroft. Not exactly a surprise. Um, That is called turning things around, and it'll be interesting to see what the decisions are now. Um, And I mentioned Paul Coffey for a reason. We all believe that Paul Coffey will get some Uh, official position or official title with the organization. We just don't know what that position will be. Um, We were all, I shouldn't say we were all, many of us were wondering if this is the week we're going to get clarity on a few things with Edmonton. And so far, it seems as if we are. Uh, Jay Woodcroft is now the full-time head coach. And uh, as the Oilers announcing, he's signed through the 24-25 season. Uh, now we wonder about Paul Coffey. Now we wonder about other players who will or will not be there 
come next season. Uh, Edmonton, one of the more interesting teams to follow uh, in the off season, as they usually are, folks, as they usually are. As you bring in Matt Marchese, you haven't talked to him in a couple of days here, our producer. How are you doing today, Matty? I'm excellent, Jeff. What do you think of last night? Man, you know, when you when you watch those games, I uh, I was happy that Tampa came out with that kind of effort because I'm I'm rooting for this to be a long series. But the two yeah. specific plays in particular, like the the Palat goal, you mentioned it. It was such a great play. Like the pass by Stamkos was was so good. And yep. and I when you watch the Landeskog goal, the, the the power play goal from different angles, the second one, you see how much margin for error what there was on that shot. That's an elite play. Like that is an elite shot with not a lot but of yet, room to put it. And shocking, it was blocker he, side. <laughs> that's it. Like you see where he's shooting, right? Like this isn't exactly a surprise. What was the story of Saturday night? Saturday night was Bucks are going to the goaltender's right side. They are going blocker side. That's where Colorado has been dining out on Andre Vasilevsky. And the great goalies make the adjustment. And the great teams recognize that and look to compensate for it. That's the area that Jared Bednar and the Colorado Avalanche have uh, have identified as the place where you can beat Vasilevsky. And I saw that go in, and I'm like, yeah, it hasn't changed. They're still shooting the exact same spot on Vasilevsky. Yeah, great shot. It, it, Listen, I know I'm was. biased because I love Landeskog. Like Landeskog, like he's probably my favorite player in the NHL. Like that's how highly I think of Gabriel Landeskog. I just love everything about his game, and. You know, you can make a case for him right now for the Conn Smythe. Not as strong a case as you can make for Kale McCarr. I understand all that. But in that in that tier right below Kale McCarr and if Andre Vasilevsky can do this, if Vasilevsky can, can, you know, pull another one out of the hat like he has previously and just throwing up, start throwing up bagels against the avalanche, then he's going to be in that conversation. But I think right now in that second tier of candidates, like he's right in the mix, isn't he? He's right in there with, with Kucherov. Some would say Valeri Nachushkin uh, in that conversation as well, but he's, he's right in there. Yeah, he absolutely is in that conversation. And, 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 it's also the way that he plays. Like when you look at his game, his game absolutely screams playoff performer, doesn't it? Just because yes. he's he can be nasty, he's got the offensive ability, he's great in his own zone. Like the, everything about him screams, you know, the, a Conn Smythe Trophy winner potentially. The guy that that is is going to fly under the radar a little bit in terms of that if Tampa wins, because I, I'm kind of in the camp of if Tampa wins, Vasilevsky is going to play much like he did last night for the rest of the series. But Nikita Kucherov is only four points away from his third consecutive 30 point playoff, which is out. It, it, like that's it's not Wayne Gretzky territory, but <laughs> Wayne Gretzky's the only other guy that's done it. So technically yeah. it is Wayne Gretzky territory. And he has he's been very up and down. Um, who knows what he's battling after last night? But underrated another potential thirty point playoff performance from Kucherov again. Yeah, you know one of the things I probably should have asked Craig about, but we, we ran out of time. When you consider how Craig Simpson, like I loved watching Craig Simpson play. I think we all did, and the way that he played was really physically demanding. And I don't, I can't tell you how many times I watched Craig Simpson in front of the net get cross-checked in the back and just think to myself, oh, 
man, Craig's going to need his kids to tie his shoes for him. Like there's, there's no way that this guy's back is going to withstand all this punishment. And Devon Taves yesterday on the Kita Kucherov. First of all, I'm sure you've cross-checked someone like that before. Not where you extend the arms into them, like you're using the stick as a club um, to hit and push a player with, but just getting in tight and then pushing down with the stick into the hip. Players know what they're doing when you do that. Maddie, I'm guessing you probably did that to more than one player when you played. That's a nasty hit. It's subtle, but it's dangerous, and man, does it ever hurt. Yeah, I was never I was never shy about using my stick for anything, um, including <laughs> I, I didn't cross check a lot, but I know that that was the that was how defensemen in front of the net wouldn't get called for cross checking. They have their hands like they're going to cross check, but just pushing back on the back of the pants, right? But once you get into that kidney area, that hurts. Oh. Like that's that's super painful. I mean, the two the two worst places, in my opinion, to get a stick. Well, the face is obvious, but I mean, if you get a cross check in the yeah. kidneys, that that hurts a, 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 like hell. And the other one was my favorite. You just drop, a you buckle. You, like, yeah, the, you, you, you just yeah. you just buckle and your knees go and you just melt. You're like a melting candle on the ice. Just bleh, like, and yeah, you stop, it, you it, Kucherov. it like turns your nervous system inside out. Um, the other one is a personal favorite because you never got caught for it. Was lining up on a face off and slashing the guy on the tops of his skates. Because that's just felt mm -hmm. there. There's no padding there. And now uh, guys wear shop blockers, it doesn't hurt. But like guys do this all the time. The other, the other slight one, Jeff, that everybody used to love was the the pool cue in the kidneys. Also very painful. The, that, uh, was, always, that was dangerous uh, yeah. by, by Taves last night, especially the proximity to the boards. Sure. I always liked the Danny Bier face-off move. Do you remember Danny? So he would get his top hand way down on the shaft of the stick, and as the puck was dropped, he would spin, and the top of his stick would catch Ooh. the other guy in the face. Nice. I like it. Danny. A... We all think of Danny Briere as this, like, nice, you know, smallish, skilled player. Man, Danny Briere was nasty. <laughs> Danny Briere, especially on face-offs. That guy took no prisoners, and whatever it took to win the battle, to win that puck, he was going to do it. And I was always amazed at that move. He got his hand right down the shaft and then spun and would catch a guy in the face and then would feign surprise. Like, oh, I had no, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. I just, just a standard face-off play. Yes, Danny, we've seen you do this now for years. I always love that. I always love that play by, by Danny Breer, especially with the, that, that Buffalo Sabres team with you know Drury and Campbell and Palmonville and Mill. That was a fun team to watch. Anyhow, um, I digress. Anything else jump out at you from, uh, from last night? I want to get to, uh, to Cam Robinson here in a couple of moments and talking prospects and should probably park some time to talk about Vancouver's newest. Uh, anything else jump out at you last night from Game 3? Just the the injuries that these guys are playing through. We see it every single year, but I'm always amazed by it. Like Nick Paul probably shouldn't have been in that game last night. Oh, and then he ends up man. scoring a big goal. But that, that to me every single year, I know we're biased because this is a hockey show, but no sport comes close. I'm sorry. Guys play with broken legs and broken ankles and all that stuff. And they do it because they want to win. I, I admire these guys. And I, as I have a hard time getting out of bed to work, I can't imagine what these guys are going. I know. I just, part of me, you know, isn't part of you like, uh, we, we're really not doing a service to our fellow human beings by fetishizing injuries and playing through them. Yes. Like, I'm always yes. of two minds. Like, one, it's like, wow, look at this. Look what they're playing through. 
And then I catch myself and say, we should really stop talking like this for the overall health of the individuals that play. To place this type of play at all costs, no matter what the injury is, you know, the uh, Monty Python night is only a flesh wound. I don't know. Doesn't that do a lot of damage to people, Maddie? Like, I know we well, celebrate I, it and we love it and it's hockey. And look at this guy, slap shot in the face, and he's coming out with the, the goldfish bowl on the face and he's out there blocking more shots. And I catch myself and I'm saying, I'm probably not helping here from a human point and, of view. And the kids that are watching, right? Like, how many times did we see that growing up and go, I'll play yeah, through it, I'll play through it. it. And now you, have, now you have trouble, like I said, getting out of bed in the morning because you did that kind of stuff. It goes both ways. Yeah, I get it. I get it. All right. Uh, let's hit a break. We're going to talk to Cam Robinson here from uh, Elite Prospects in a couple of moments. Uh, we're going to talk about a couple of things. One, uh, some of the names you'll hear called in the first round uh, at the NHL draft. We'll start with the top and then, you know, get Cam's thoughts on a couple of sleepers in the first round, some names you want to pay attention to. But we'll begin the conversation uh, by making Vancouver Canucks fans very happy. I'm going to talk about Andre Kuzmenko here in a couple of moments. Cam Robinson from Elite Prospects, their director of film scouting, joins me in a couple of moments as the Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet radio network. Great daily gambling advice from J.D., Blake, and Ailish in the Fan Morning Show's Wake and Rake. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the program. So I just got a text from uh, Randeep Janda over at 650. I'm calling it Kuzmenko Mania. I think many are and probably should be in Vancouver right now. We'll begin our conversation uh, with Cam Robinson about Andre Kuzmenko uh, from Elite Prospects. My good buddy Cam Robinson is aboard. How are you today, Cam? I'm doing well, Jeff. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing very well. Listen, I know you're super busy, so I really appreciate you carving out some time from your busy schedule today uh, to talk to me and the listeners uh, about prospects. But before we get there, what should everybody in Vancouver understand and know about Andre Kuzmenko? Why should you be excited about this player who will slide right into a top six role? Yeah, it's. Um, I think the first and foremost, it's it's probably exciting for the fans is that they finally got a win, kind of after you know nearly a decade of kind of taking some taking some beatings in uh, in managerial decisions and just the play on the ice. Um, so it's nice to to go after a player that's highly touted and and to land him. So they should be excited about that. Um, Kuzmenko is, you know, I don't think he's a lock to be a top six contributor. I think that he'll probably get that opportunity right out the door. Uh, he's a yeah. shifty skater. He's got great hands. Um, you know, he can embarrass uh, defenders, you know, going in, in transition and, and in the offensive zone. Um, more of a pass first winger, I'd say. And so he'll probably mesh well. You know, if he lands on uh, the second line with Bo Horvat there, who, who's kind of more of a, a shoot first center, um, or, you know, if uh, if maybe JT Miller ends up going out the door because this opens up some flexibility there, is that, you know, maybe he's uh, next to Pedersen and across from Besser with another two great shooters there, too, that he can he can kind of get the puck to. Um, has a little bit of jam to his game, too. You know, he likes to get in there and he can he can fight for pucks. Um, I think the biggest kind of question mark with his, his translatability is is on the defensive side of things. And so he can, you know, he'll he'll stick with his guy on the back check a little bit, but once you get in zone there, he, he's, he's not... Uh, he's not going to win any selfies, that's for sure. Um, so he's going to have to <laughs> pop a little bit offensively. But uh, I think he's going to get the opportunity to do that and, and probably get some some power play time too. So uh, the the range of outcomes is going to be pretty wide, I think, for for points. We'll see how he meshes and how he translates. But, uh, you know, it's a free dart in an organization that needs more free darts. So I think it's uh, yeah. definitely a win. 
Yeah, it's, um, you know, I've always been of the mind that, you know, you can't expect every winger to be Mark Stone. You can't expect every center to be Patrice Bergeron or, or Pavel Datsuk, as, uh, as my good friend Dennis Biak used to always say to me, Jeff, dancers dance and fiddlers fiddle. That's what makes it great. So, you know, the, the one thing, and this may seem like a frivolous question, and it very much is, uh, and maybe you have an answer to it, or maybe you're like the rest of us, and you're just looking at this thing, and you're saying, what is that? Can you explain the tape job that he uses on his blade? I, I cannot. I cannot. But I did hear you and uh, you and Elliot talking about um, Kucherov changing his and you know copying the Panarin and, and things like that and looking for the yeah. Pasternak. Um, I don't have an explanation for that tape it's job, the, but uh, it's, I, it's, it's pretty funny. <laughs> some of these guys, the way they the way they cue them up, or like Ryan O'Reilly's blade itself, it's just you know they find yeah. something that works, and, and with tape, it's kind of a confidence thing, I think, more than anything. Yeah, you know, we were talking, Elliot and I, on the latest podcast that just came out a couple of hours ago about Kuzmenko and making the point about Bruce Boudreau. And, like, when you think about it this way, like, you're Kuzmenko and, you know, certainly the agent Dan Milstein of Gold Star. And you're saying, okay, he's coming in on a one-year deal somewhere. We need a place where he can, where he has the potential to maximize his output and really put together a good resume for the first year to earn a big contract in the second season. The one thing we know about Bruce Boudreau is he's helped players score and he's opened the door to offensive creativity and offensive production. This does seem like a good fit for Kuzmenko, just even just from a selfish point of view, just like, okay, I need an environment here where I can put up points. Welcome Bruce Boudreau to the world of Andre Kuzmenko. Yeah, without a doubt. And, you know, why not be selfish, right? Like, he's he's 26 years old. He, he has no allegiance to any organization at this point. He's going to try to sign up somewhere that, you know, obviously he's going to enjoy his time and get good opportunities and, and maybe have, uh, you know, he played with Vasily Colson for a couple of years there in Ska. So, you know, he, there's a friendly face in the room. Um, but you're absolutely right with, with Boudreaux is that I think when he came in and, and replaced Travis Green that it was, a, it was a breath of fresh air where it was, you know, let's just go out there and we're not going to beat teams 1-0, 2-1 because we don't have the, the defense to do it. Uh, we don't have the depth to do it. So let's try and run and gun a little bit. Let's go have some fun and be creative. And I think that he's going to mesh well with that because he is a very creative offensive player. Loves to cut back on guys. Like he'll do four or five cutbacks in the zone. Ala, you know, Sidney Crosby with that puck protection skill. So he's going to shake some guys in, in the D zone and he's going to, he's going to try some things and some of them are going to work and it's going to be really exciting and impressive. And some of them won't. Um, I think the key there will be just having the trust of the coaches to keep wheeling them back out there to, you know, not to just staple them to the bench when something doesn't go right, because uh, that's not the type of player he is. He's going to take chances and, and sometimes it, it won't pay off, but, but when it does, you know, that'll help the team. Uh, with Cam Robinson from Elite Prospects. Uh, Cam, I want to ask you about this year's draft class and want to drill down on a couple of players. But uh, before we get to the, you know, the, 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 the high-end guys, the Shane Wrights and the Logan Cooleys, um, I want to ask you about one player, and that's Marco Casper. Now, I liked him before I went to the Combine in Buffalo. And then after talking to him, I remember, like, it's very rare that I put myself in a situation where I say, okay, man, if I was a manager, if I was a scout, or if I was someone in an NHL organization, after the interview, I want this guy on my team. It's all blended in with performance, certainly as well. But after talking to Marco Casper, not only do I love the player, but I also love the person too. How high are you on Casper? 
I'm very high. And I actually just had a big uh, deep dive article film room that came out yesterday morning on him that I watched way too much of his tape. And I titled it that Marco Casper is a menace, but in the best way possible. Um, This kid is just a wrecking ball out there. You know, he played in the SHL for a handful of games as a 16 year old. He was a full timer as a 17 year old. And that is purely based on the style of play that he that he puts out there. And he is so tenacious. He lifts so many sticks. He's hard on pucks. He'll blow up guys, you know, in the open ice as a teenager yeah. playing in the SHL. You know, I, his skill level is probably a, a touch below some of the other guys that are going to go in and around him. Um, but he is just so translatable. Like, he has a pro game already set up. Um, he has a good release, you know, good passing skills, good skater. Um, the physicality, you know, the hands are probably just a, a touch below everything else. But as he went through the playoffs... Um, his game elevated, his minutes elevated, his points came with it. He went to the World Championships. I thought he was excellent at the World Championships. So for a big, strong center iceman, you know, those guys don't sit around too long on draft day, especially if they're trending upward. So I, I fully expect him to go, you know, if not in the top 10, like right around it too. Um, and, you know, throughout much of the season, everyone kind of saw him as maybe more of a, a late teens, early 20 types guy. But I'm a big, big fan of his game, especially after watching, you know, countless hours of it here the last few weeks. Now, we've all heard the takes, uh, pro-Shane Wright, anti-Shane Wright, pro-Logan Cooley, pro-Yuri Slavkovsky, anti-Logan Cooley, anti-Slavkovsky, maybe uh, Matthew Savoy sl- slides into that conversation, uh, Nemec or Juracek slides in there. If you're selecting first overall, you're the Montreal Canadiens, Cam, who are you taking? I'm taking Shane Wright. He, 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 from tip to tail, he was number one on my board. I think that because of the, you know, that just incredible first year in the OHL where he blew everybody out of the water, you know, he outpointed what McDavid did as an exceptional status kid too, that that just set the expectations so, so high. And then to lose his draft minus one year, that is only kind of built it. And he had the great U18s and, you know, he, he tore it up there. And everyone's like, how many points is this guy going to put up? But, you know, it's, it's easy to forget how, how difficult it is to lose a whole season of hockey, especially that age, that developmental age is it's massive. So it took him a while to warm up, but also you have to understand his game is more, it's more cerebral. It's intelligent. He's hunting for pucks. He's making smart decisions. He's planning, he's scanning. So he's not someone who's going to have his feet moving a hundred miles a minute all the time. Um, but you know, he's working smartly rather than, you know, just going crazy all the time. So I think, having the the potential to roll out Shane Wright and Nick Suzuki down the middle for Montreal for the next decade plus, like that's a luxury that few teams are ever going to be afforded. Um, so for me, I think it makes sense organizationally. Um, and I think it, it makes sense with the player and the person there as well. So, so he would be my number one for sure. Uh, and then where do the uh, Logan Cooley's and Yuri Slavkovsky's, uh, are those your two threes or does someone else slide into that conversation? Oh, and by the way, just as an aside about Shane Wright, like I, I'm with you. Like I think if you're Ken Hughes, don't galaxy brain this thing. Um, you know, the idea of running up the gut with Nick Suzuki and Shane Wright the next 10 years, like just take what's been handed to you. This is, this is, this is a gift if you're, uh, if you're Ken Hughes. Um, where do you put Cooley? Where do you put Slavkovsky? What should we know about them? And are they the two threes for you? Or, you know, do we see a defenseman slide in there? Do we see someone from the Winnipeg Ice slide in there? Or any other surprises? Yeah, I'll say this, that if, you know, if I'm betting on what will happen, I think it'll go right and then it'll go Slavkovsky at two because it makes a lot of sense for New Jersey for what they have in their in their system right now. And, and with the big club, you know, they have Hisher, they have Hughes down the middle already um, and, you know, Jesper Brad up top there, too. So they have some smaller skilled players. You, you put a kid like uh, like Slavkovsky into the mix and, and you maybe let him run shotgun with Jack Hughes for the next little while. And that could be 
pretty incredible. Now, you know, talking about Kuzmenko and that there's a kind of a wide range of, of outcomes for him. I think the same can be said for Yaroslavkowski is that he could end up being like a unicorn. One of these guys who plays six foot four, 225 pounds, has those soft hands, can score, can pass, um, can be a lead in a lot of categories and can, you know, be mean and hard to play against. But, you know, he needs a little bit of time and space to make things happen. So if maybe the offense doesn't translate, like he might end up being kind of more of a passenger on a second line. So there is a bit more risk attached to him, um, which, you know, kind of is, is he's going to end up number four on my personal list. Um, and that top four, top five is all tightly compacted. But I think he goes number two. And then I think Logan Cooley makes a ton of sense at number three there because he's he's right in that mix. You know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if Montreal took uh, Cooley at one because he's right there with Wright. I think he has, you know, a little more speed, a little more offensive creativity with the hands. Um, he plays kind of more of a pace driven game that, that coaches really like and organizations really like. So um, I think he will be there at three. And I think for Arizona, they need everything. Right. And so they're just going to go ahead and take the best player available and, and load it up. And I think he's that guy there. Now, dark horses to slip in. You mentioned him, Simo Nemec, you know, the top right-handed defenseman in this class. We know that finding a right shot D on the back end that can do everything like Nemec can, uh, they're hard to come by. You basically have to draft them or get extremely lucky by targeting them in a, in a draft or uh, in a trade early on in their career before they really pop. So he's someone I could see sneaking up. Um, you know, a guy like Pavel Mintyukov, who had the great year in Saginaw, he also lost his draft minus one season. Just a tremendous season, kept getting better as the year went along. Um, he's a sneaky one that I could see slipping into the top five, even the top three. Um, and I'll mention I'll mention one more guy who I just absolutely love, and it's Denton Matejchuk. And I know he has a wide range of outcomes as well. Hmm. And I've talked to some teams that think that he could be the best defenseman in this crop, the most impactful one, and others that say, like, you know, we like him, but we like him more in the late teens. Um, so, as you know, Jeff, anything can happen on draft day. We're going to hear the oohs and ahs, you know, when, when the Barrett-Hayton pick ends up going again or something like that, or Cockney <laughs> style. Um, but, and I hope we do have a few of those. Because this class is, it's fun like that. It's not, there's not really clear tiers, even at the very, very top. So I think it could get weird and wild pretty early. Yeah, you know, you, you wonder if like, you know, a Matthew Savoy slips in there or someone like Cutter Goche of the uh, uh, the U.S. program slides in there as well. Like, I think we get some some twists and turns on this one. Like, every list uh, is different. Every scout that you talk to is different. Any draft observer that you talk to, you know, they all have different feelings on this one and, and which way it's uh, it, it's it's going to turn. You know, the 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 couple of names that I that I really do wonder about, because you always wonder about the wild card. Right. And, you know, every year, once upon a time, it was Cam Fowler that really fell. Uh, Josh Hosang was one that really fell. Um, I don't know where Brad Lambert ends up. I know the skill, uh, but I just I just don't know which. Maybe it's a team that has multiple picks in the first round that grabs them. But where do you see Brad Lambert ending up? I think you isolated the the true wild card, and and you're absolutely right that I think a team with multiple first round picks would probably be more inclined to take a swing on a kid like him. Um, but you know, it it's very interesting. I try to keep my finger on the pulse with some NHL clubs too, and see how you know how they're gauging some of these players. And he has just a huge range of outcomes. I'm writing an article right now, you know, titled "Most Divisive Prospects," and he's number one. I'm talking about um, yeah. because the. The speed and the hands combination are, is arguably the top in the class, him or, or Frankie Nazar. Um, but what he does with those physical tools is is kind of the big question mark. Is The old saying, you know, he's got all the tools, but does he have the toolbox to carry him around? 
And so that, that along with some consistency issues, you know, he's moved around clubs of his own volition, you know, asking to move clubs and, and organizations don't really love that. You know, they don't love a player whose draft stock is sliding the wrong direction, um, but it just takes one team. So I could see him going in the top 10. I could see him being there on day two. Um, so it, it is, it's really going to be an interesting one to watch. Absolutely. You know, it, wow. It's similar to that to Ratu last year, right? Like he was a kid who was projected as a top five yeah. pick and ended up sliding all the way to the Islanders there on day two. And so when, when a guy's stock seems to fall, he, he becomes something of a pariah on draft day and teams don't really want to bite. They want to leave it and be like, yeah, we'll take him. But if it, if it makes sense for us, and maybe that's on day two. Let me ask you about one uh, one player, and it's a very sensitive issue considering the health uh, situation that he's going through right now. We've got about a minute left for this one. Um, Ivan Moroshnichenko, uh, does a team jump up and take him in the first round, or does he end up going a little bit later on? I mean, a lot of the mocks coming into the season before the uh, before the health issues uh, with Moroshnichenko, he was right in there. Everyone had him in the first round. Uh, what happens with Moroshnichenko come draft day? Yeah, another another really good question, and, and he's just such a jackhammer, right? Skates fast, shoots hard, hits harder, um, but he's got a couple of things going against him. Obviously, the health um, situation. I'm sure teams are going to do their due diligence on that. You know, some of the reports coming out is that it's it's positive, and that and that's wonderful to hear. Um, he also unfortunately has his passport going against him too. This at this yeah. time of year with this geopolitical things going on, is that you know I've heard from teams too that. You know, some of the top Russians are going to slide a little bit and some of that next year are going to slide a ton that some some clubs are just not even interested in in trying to draft them this year um, because just even getting them visas and getting them over to North America is going to be so challenging. So that's why a kid like uh, Mitiukov, who's already here and playing that that's a huge leg up for him. But for Moroshnichenko. I think skill-wise, another one who's got all the physical tools. Maybe the IQ is lacking a little bit, um, but you know he could he could certainly end up as a middle six forward that could complement and help out in a lot of ways. I think he's probably got first uh, round skill, but I expect yeah. him to be there on day two. But again, you know, a team has multiple picks. Like maybe Arizona takes a swing on him late and then on day one or something like that, and adds you know takes a swing on talent in a spot like that that they can afford to do it versus a club that you know only has the one pick and they need to hit on it. You know, a general manager out there in Montreal is going to have a rare opportunity to draft his son. The other Jack Hughes is available. Is he a first-rounder for you or a second? Uh, he's a second for me, but he's early. I've got him 39 on my boards. You know, just a tenacious worker. He's he's really advanced defensively and held his own in the NCAA as a draft eligible. Um, I think his offensive game probably won't pop, but it's it's going to be a player that's going to help you win down the line if things keep going for him like that. And how cool would that be, right? If they if they if they took him, they're not going to take him first <laughs> overall, but but maybe in the second round they'll they'll yeah. take a swing on him. I know in that when Montreal talked to him, uh, his dad tried to leave the room. Kent tried to leave the room, and everybody in Montreal said, no, you're going to stay uh, while we talk to your son. Uh, Cam, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks, pal, for, uh, for every, first of all, for everything you do with Elite Prospects, which is first class. And thanks for parking some time with me today. I know it's a busy one for you. I really appreciate it, pal. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks a lot, Jeff. There he is, Cam Robinson from Elite Prospects, uh, director of film scouting. The whole group does excellent work. Um, I want to thank Cam for stopping by. I want to thank Craig Simpson from HockeyNet in Canada and the NHL on Sportsnet. Matthew DeFranks from the Dallas Morning News. Have they announced DeBoer yet? No, but Edmonton announced Jay Woodcroft. Congratulations. And Elliot Friedman from Hockey Night and 32 Thoughts. 7 o'clock this evening, NHL Awards. Enjoy.